You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Someone is fishing for Russian rocketeers. The Port of Houston discloses a cyber attack, which the port says it deflected before it had operational consequences. Ransomware gangs are up and active, and the U.S. is considering mandatory reporting by victims as a defensive policy. Pegasus spyware is said to have been found in the phones of five French government ministers. Johannes Ulrich from the Sands Technology Institute on attackers hunting for environmental variables. Our guest is Graham Bunton of the DNS Abuse Institute. And Huawei's Meng Wanzhou may soon be headed home from Vancouver. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, September 24th, 2021. Security firm Malwarebytes reported this week that it had, quote, reason to believe that the MSHTML vulnerability listed under CVE 2021-4444 is being used to target Russian entities, end quote. The company says its researchers had intercepted email attachments that appear to be used as fish bait to catch Russian organizations. Among the organizations targeted was JSCGREC Mikheyev, a company that develops both liquid and solid propellant ballistic missile systems, and that serves as one of Russia's principal rocket and space technology research and development centers. One of the phishing emails directed at Mikheyev recipients represented itself as coming from human resources. Other organizations are receiving emails purported to come from the Ministry of the Interior and providing notification that illegal activity has been detected. Whatever the fish bait, the goal of the social engineering, appears to be, in the first instance, harvesting of personal information. Malwarebytes has no attribution. As the company observes, however, quote, It is rare that we find evidence of cybercrimes against Russian targets. Given the targets, especially the first one, we suspect that there may be a state-sponsored actor behind these attacks, and we are trying to find out the origin of the attacks. We will keep you informed if we make any progress in that regard. End quote. Microsoft has patched the vulnerability the attackers seek to exploit. 
The Port of Houston Authority said yesterday in a brief announcement that it had successfully defended itself against a cybersecurity attack in August. Port Houston followed its facility's security plan in doing so, as guided under the Maritime Transportation Security Act, and no operational data or systems were impacted as a result. End quote. CNN reports that on August 19th, attackers believed to be associated with a foreign intelligence service gained access to a server in the Port of Houston planted malware, and stole Microsoft credentials. Defenders were able to isolate the compromised server within about an hour and a half of the initial attack. Whichever nation-state was responsible for the Houston attack, and there's no attribution yet, the record reports that the attack was accomplished by exploiting a zero-day in a Zoho authentication appliance. A week ago, the U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency issued a joint advisory with the FBI and the Coast Guard, warning that CVE-2021-4539, a vulnerability in Zoho's password manager and single sign-on solution Manage Engine AD Self-Service Plus, was being actively exploited in the wild. Zoho had addressed the bug on September 6th, and CISA urged users to apply the patch as soon as possible. The Port of Houston incident would seem to explain both the urgency and of the Coast Guard's involvement in the advisory. Wired notes that the brief dip in the frequency and consequence of ransomware attacks earlier this summer was a false dawn and not an enduring trend. The gangs and the intelligence services that abet them seem simply to have taken time to adjust to Western, mostly U.S. policy and law enforcement tactics, and have returned with, if anything, even greater intensity. Their occultation was no exit and no retirement, and they're back without any sign that they've moderated their appetites. As part of its response to ransomware and other threats to critical infrastructure, the U.S. administration has been pushing for mandatory cyber incident reporting, and the U.S. Congress is considering legislation to that effect. The Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee yesterday held a hearing on cybersecurity and protecting critical infrastructure, Senator Gary Peters, Democrat of Michigan and chair of the committee, asked CISA Director Easterly for her views on an incident reporting bill the senator and his colleagues are working on. My first question is uh, for Director Easterly. Uh, if, if our incident reporting bill were enacted, what would CISA do with this information and, and how would you be able to help victims? Thanks very much for your question, Chairman. First of all, CISA plays a critical role uh, as the national coordinator for critical infrastructure resilience and security. As I think about uh, CISA's superpower that we use on behalf of the nation and the American people is our ability to share information rapidly to enable us to protect other potential victims. So what we could do with this information is not only render assistance to the victim and help them remediate uh, and recover uh, from the attack, but we could use that information, we could analyze it, and then we could share it broadly to see whether, in fact, uh, evidence of such intrusions were found across the sector or, frankly, across other sectors or across the federal civilian executive branch. So we think uh, that timely and relevant importing is at reporting of cyber incidents is absolutely critical to help us raise the baseline and protect the cyber ecosystem. How would such legislation be enforced? Director Easterly wants something other than subpoenas, something more agile, 
and thinks that some system of fines might be appropriate. National Cyber Director Inglis agreed. Mr. Chairman, I support uh, that view strongly. Um, I would observe that uh, most of the 50 states have uh, reporting uh, requirements of a similar sort, and the vast majority of those have an enforcement mechanism. Many of those use fines. There may be some best practices in there if we do a thoughtful survey of how they've actually addressed this and how that has worked and whether that has imposed an unfair burden on the victims. We, of course, don't want to impose um, an unfair burden on the victims, but this information is essential for the welfare of the whole. There should be rewards for good behavior. If If you've performed well and thoughtfully in this, the benefit should be obvious, which is that we can provide better services, both in response and in preventing this in the future. The full hearing is available on C-SPAN. Mediapart reports that investigation confirms at least five French ministers' phones were infected with Pegasus spyware. Just who instigated the installation of the spyware remains unclear. The Washington Post notes that Mediapart has suggested the government of Morocco was behind the installation, but Morocco, for what it's worth, has both denied involvement and brought a lawsuit against Mediapart, alleging defamation. And finally, Huawei CFO Meng Wanzhou will soon be able to leave Vancouver, where she's been fighting extradition to the United States, where she faces charges related to alleged violations of sanctions against Iran. The U.S. Justice Department is said, according to the Wall Street Journal, to have reached a deferred prosecution agreement with her that's expected to be entered today, when she appears remotely from Canada before a court in Brooklyn. Quote, The agreement will require Ms. Meng to admit to some wrongdoing in exchange for prosecutors deferring and later dropping wire and bank fraud charges. End quote. Ms. Meng was arrested in the Vancouver airport in December 2018, Reuters reminds us, on a U.S. warrant alleging bank fraud and wire fraud charges in connection with what the U.S. indictment characterized as misleading a banking partner and financial services partner, HSBC, about Huawei's involvement with Iran. The South China Morning Post characterizes the U.S.'s part in the agreement as dropping the charges. That's not entirely accurate. Under a deferred prosecution agreement, the government brings charges but agrees not to proceed to prosecution provided the defendant acknowledges responsibility and agrees to certain conditions. If the defendant keeps their side of the bargain, then after a certain specified period of time, the government drops the charges. In any case, Ms. Meng is likely to be able to return to China shortly after the conclusion of today's virtual hearing. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. 
Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. When it comes to attempts to mitigate the actions of bad actors abusing the Internet's domain name system, the DNS, one of the hurdles facing interested parties is how precisely to define DNS abuse. Graham Bunton is director of the DNS Abuse Institute, where he's leading the charge to try to bring more clarity to this issue. So the DNS Abuse Institute was created by um, PIR, who run the uh, .org TLD you know, they've been operating in the space for a very long time, and they, like I do, see DNS abuse or these online, this set of online harms uh, as something like a collective action problem, where registrars and registries would be better served by being more proactive and, and uh, active on mitigating uh, DNS abuse. But there's a number of disincentives and historical reasons why they haven't been doing so. So the DNS Abuse Institute was created to try and fill that gap. We're going to do that with technology and education and work on collaboration within the industry to try and ultimately uh, reduce DNS abuse. Well, this article that you all recently published, uh, DNS Abuse Definition, is there an issue with uh, there not being a standard definition of what constitutes DNS abuse? Unfortunately, yes. At least within the community we operate, the ICANN community and, and a bit larger than that, there has been sort of endless cycles of debate about what constitutes DNS abuse. It has gone on for years. I can elaborate a little bit here that, that mm. you know, registrars and registries want a relatively constrained set of harms that they feel capable of, of understanding and mitigating and the DNS is like the only centralized bit of the uh, Internet's ecosystem, you know, of the broader infrastructure. And so lots of people have harms that are impacting them, and they want to resolve them. And reasonably, they find themselves at the DNS, because that's the only place where they're going to have a real crack at, at getting them resolved. And so mm -hmm. you have these two competing interests trying to define what harms registries and registrars should be responsible for. Is this a, partially a matter of fostering collaboration among the, the interested parties rather than, I could imagine there being quite a bit of finger pointing? There is a lot of finger pointing. And I think what I am trying to do here is really get people to come to the table and say, look, here's the harm. Here's how it intersects with the layer of internet infrastructure that you operate and you solving it here checks a lot of these boxes. And then you can disagree about specifically which boxes you think are checked. So often within the DNS, we, we fail on, on two mitigation attributes. It is often not precise. 
So the harm might be on some sort of, it might be on a subdomain or a long URL, not the domain name itself, uh, or it may not be proportional because most registries and registrars only have the ability to turn off a domain name. And so then we can get into a discussion of specifically what it is that they might disagree on, where they can say, no, I think this harm is proportional to act at the DNS. And that's great because now it's no longer just do it. We now can say, yes, it's quick and it's efficient, but we're concerned about this proportionality. And so now we can have a more nuanced conversation about the harm and how to mitigate it. And where are these conversations taking place? Ah, most of this happens within an ICANN context. So either at ICANN meetings or events surrounding that ecosystem, because that's for the most part where domain names are regulated. Some of this is happening within uh, the broader uh, domain name ecosystem involving CCTLDs as well. And what do you hope to, to come out of this? I mean, if, if, if people are on board and you get widespread adoption, what will things look like on the other side? You know, boy, I, I would love to, first of all, get more people on board for mitigating abuse so that the internet actually gets safer, you know? Uh, uh, and then the, the next piece of this is that if we have a little bit more sophistication in our dialogue, we can understand where we disagree and we uh, agree a bit more, we then can, can begin to tackle things like, oh boy, this harm is, is, should be addressed at the hosting level, but it hasn't been. We have, you know, gone through a rigorous process of trying to do that. Now we can escalate up to the next layer of internet infrastructure or down to the next layer of internet infrastructure, you know, to the layer of the DNS. And you have some, some you know, evidence of that process that you've gone through. And now you might have a better case for acting at the layer of the DNS if you've escalated appropriately. But none of those best practices exist yet. And so that's a thing that we'll try and work on next. That's Graham Bunton from the DNS Abuse Institute. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Johannes Ulrich. He is the Dean of Research at the Sands Technology Institute and also the host of the ISC Stormcast podcast. Johannes, it's always great to have you back. We want to touch today on attackers who are hunting for environmental variables. What can you uh, share with us today? The root cause of this problem is how, as a developer, are you going to store secrets? And in particular, in modern uh, web applications, uh, you need an awful lot of secrets. You connect to various APIs, where you need to provide some kind of access key. You need to connect uh, to a database uh, that may ask you for a username and a password. 
The one place where you don't want to store these variables is your code. So you have to find uh, another solution. Now, they're very expensive, very elaborate secret managers. Uh, not everybody has those. A very cheap and uh, reasonable, uh, good way of doing this is we just store them in environment variables. Environment variables are not typically sort of directly readable like uh, source code. They don't leak as easily, but where are you storing these environment variables? So we just uh, moved mm. the target a little bit. Mm -hmm. And what a lot of developers apparently are doing is they're storing these environment variables in a file and then they place the file in the document root of your web server. The document root is the directory where by default your files are being retrieved from. So now it's really just a matter of an attacker guessing the right file name pointing it to your or looking for that file on your web server and they have all your secrets. Add to that that uh, developers aren't really all that inventive when it comes to these file names. We do see a <laughs> lot of requests for very common names like .env and, uh, or just .env, so short for environment. And lately also a lot for Twilio.env where Twilio is a service that allows you to send SMS messages, uh, make phone calls and such. A lot of websites use that sort of to integrate uh, with uh, voice and, and text messaging. And so what's the solution here? I mean, is, is it as simple as, as putting this stuff in a protected directory? Yeah, that's the first step. Uh, put it outside the document route. That way, an attacker using that very simple attack is not able to access it. Of course, the real solution is use a proper secret manager as I said, this can be a little bit complex. It's very specific on particular uh, language environment that you're using. So, for example, if you're looking at the Twilio documentation, they have an example how to store the secrets as environment variable. That's sort of what they recommend. The reason why they recommend it is because it pretty much works for everybody. Uh, while any more sophisticated solution is very specific to the language and uh, the overall environment that you're using. Hmm. Right. Oh, interesting stuff. Johannes Ulrich, thanks for joining us. And that's The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Looking for something to do this weekend? Well, be sure to check out this week's Research Saturday. My conversation with Ariel Zelovansky from Palo Alto Networks. We're discussing their work titled What You Need to Know About AzureScape. That's Research Saturday. Do check it out. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karp, Peru Prakash, Justin Sabi, Tim Nodar, Joe Carrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here next week. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud. 
the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the dark net, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com slash cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. That's spycloud.com slash cyberwire. Cyberwire. 